I'm Jim. I'm Jesse. I'm John, and this is the Giant Bombcast. Oh no. All the J's are here. Uh, this is Topic Lore. It's the only podcast on the internet where you can hear topics discussed. Jesse, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? No and no, but I would like to point out that the last time I was on this podcast, Jim forgot to ask me that, and it ruined a running <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that. So, listeners, please email... Jim at TopicLords.com and complain to him about how he ruined everything. That can be a topic on a future episode. Jim, do you want to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Uh, I'm Jim. I do a podcast called Topic Lords. Uh, I make video games sometimes. I made a series called Frog Fractions that people like, but not enough for me to make a living doing it. Right now I'm doing this Let's Play series that is kind of ballooned into... Uh, doing the entire Mario series level by level. I've been recording in chunks. Like, whenever I get an hour free, I, I'll record a bunch of levels. And right now, uh, I'm up to, like, I'm, I'm, like, 10 years in the future now. Like, you'll be, the, the nukes will fly tomorrow, and you'll be roaming the capital wasteland, and new Mario Twinbeard content will be coming out every day for years. Unless somebody looks something up and uh, turns it into a Wordle situation where everything is revealed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's already known what levels come next. <laughs> is it, though? I saw a Link's Awakening uh, speedrun once where uh, the answer may surprise you. <laughs> that uh, I know exactly what – I'm like not a speedrun consumer, but I know exactly that speedrun and it's delightful. <laughs> Those are some of my favorites. All right. Uh, and I'm John John B. Uh, we're, we're, we're working on a new name for me. We might have a poll up for you later. You, you can vote on the name. But, no, you're, uh, just, you're just John B. forever. Okay. Works for me. The, 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 other, the other John B. did not claim it, so he can uh, – yeah, he's he's either John or John Bettenville. You um, you're John B in the tagging system. If you don't know this about the that's law, right? If you don't know this about the the Topic Lords website, it's a little bit awkward to get to. But if you go to any given episode, the people's there's like a, a list of hosts, and you can or what what is it actually? Topic Lords Lords. Well, I mean they're Lords, but like what is the what does the website call it? Because I don't actually have control. They're under tags. If you click on one of the tags. On the episode page, you can get a list of all the episodes with that person in them. You should do a Lord Cloud. Yeah, that's a good idea. That would, that would answer the debate we were having before the show. Have you considered having fewer friends named John? Uh, I, I I need fewer friends named Jay anything yeah. because like the number of episodes. You're with... listening to the Giant Bombcast. Yeah, yeah. When you said that, I just wanted to start like humming the Midnight Brown theme. It was just like. Not appropriate at all. <laughs> all right. Are we ready to get started on some topics? Uh, I'm ready. I'll let you host from this point okay, on. Okay. All right. I just I... wanted to do the intro bit. <laughs> I am also ready. I'll take responsibility. John, your topic is Wario 64. Yeah. What's the deal with Wario 64? No. <laughs> Wikipedia defines Wario 64 as uh, Wario 64 is Webster's is a, Dictionary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is this is this is all the Wario content I will be mentioning on the uh, the podcast this time, dear listeners. Wario 64 is a famous Twitter account, uh, presumably one guy, but you know, internet being what it is, we don't know. Apparently verified. Uh, I knew that, but never really took notice yeah like verified like did this person like contact twitter what's the process for getting verified and, uh, and verified you know, as what I, uh, verified is existing i guess yeah i think it's to like 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 people who are prominent enough that people would have fake twitter accounts over yeah them. yeah it's like having a purple name in the discord right yes it indicates you're a lord because you've got the lordly color yeah i know some verify 
verified folks, but uh, I have not asked them. You get superpowers to manage your insane flow of information. I don't know if that's true anymore. It used to be true that you oh. could have a you could go in there and check a box, and then you would like only see tweets from other verified people. Yeah, but that's I don't think that's true anymore. Well, maybe that one's gone, but there's probably some other benefit. All right, yeah. So anyway, Warrior sixty four is a mostly video game deals account that's focused. Yeah. So, uh, and, and being on Twitter, uh, even though cheap ass gamer the former king is also on Twitter. Uh, Warrior sixty four is kind of the uh, incredibly up to date web two point five oh. What is Twitter? Is Twitter part of the two point oh? It feels it feels newer than that. Well, it's not Web 3.0 because that's something else. Right. Yeah. So, so it's it's got to be yeah. two, right? One is like when the web it's, was good. Two is user supplied yeah, content, yeah. and three is crypto scams. Uh, I, I thought two yeah. was Ajax back when they had a name for that sort of thing. Instead of that's just like you you write your entire application in JavaScript. Yeah. Uh, let's pull a goat simulator. He's he's web he's web 4.0. Okay. Done. My only interactions with Wario sixty four with at Wario sixty four up until now have been when that name comes up in my column on TweetDeck searching for Frog Fractions. Uh-huh. Tweet about Frog Fractions sales, and I was like, oh, I guess it's a account that tweets about sales. But like, I'm scrolling through this, and they tweet a lot. Yeah. So uh, apparently, you know, you can probably surmise it's probably his primary living or whoever's primary. Oh, living. like affiliate links. Yeah. So. It's- so it's that's declared up front. You know, there's affiliate links. They're tagged ad, and then there are links that are not tagged ad. So I think a lot of the frog fractions. You know, oh, uh, I, the reason the reason I wanted to talk about Oreo sixty four is because it's this very straightforward and incredibly useful account. Yeah, I found a tweet where. Wario 64 gives his take on Chris Pratt voicing Mario. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so Wario 64, very straightforward, useful account, but from time to time is still able to inject personality despite keeping up a very current and um, focused updates on various deals on video games going on. So yeah. so this this person is alerting you to online sales or is this like for people who are purchasing, uh, you know, like loose copies of... Uh, it's primarily online, um, both digital and storefront, shipping you physical games because he has he usually has to have something to link to. But uh, things like treasure truck deals or there's other real world things that he'll uh, he'll mention. But yeah, like there's a bunch of running gags that he'll do. Uh, some of them are picked up from others, like the the infamous picture of uh, Gerald in the hot tub from The Witcher. Right. Any anytime Witcher comes up, it's that. Uh, but also. Like during the current, the Steam Summer Sale is going on currently, and his big thing is the game Everything. So everything is not on sale during the Steam the Steam Summer Sale. <laughs> so the game Everything is not on sale, and that's funny. Another one is uh, Sleeping Dogs is always referred to as Sleepy Dogs. Right, that's that's the correct name. Yeah, and uh, often, usually when he posts that, uh, the image will be edited. I think I caught him sleeping one time, oh. so to speak, on on that. But yeah, it's edit edits the name to be Sleepy Dogs, and it's just this silly running gag. But going through that little extra effort uh, seems like a lot during the course of posting these. Right. A lot of them are re- repost of deals too that he t- he tweeted about earlier, just as reminders. So I'm sure there's some automation going on with the content and things like that. But it it can't all be because it's uh it's that 
current. So this is an account that tweets ads and skims money off of you purchasing video games, but they've sprinkled in just enough weird Twitter bits to make you care about it. It's not just ads. They're also tweeting just about general interest deals. Right. But but a lot more of it is ads than I realized before I saw I noticed that tag. Yeah. So I I have a feeling a lot of those would be tweeted out anyway, but he's getting paid for it as well. Right. Like the account is is clearly not just like it's it's shilling in that it's obviously focused on consumer products and all that. And it's it's he's not necessarily a fan of everything, but it's providing that, you know, it's a general a genuinely useful thing even though it's wrapped up in this whole consumerist thing yeah so this whole conversation i've been scrolling through the wario 64 feed and i'm on i'm i got as far back as yesterday like this is this this account has a lot of tweets here's one about the diva action figure on amazon for 80 dollars. and he'll post other random deals there's lots of movie deals but uh the best ones are like vast quantities of food available from Amazon, like popcorn or Oreos or things like that. <laughs> it's just... Gamer Yeah, grub. like, like yeah. An interesting uh, account. And sometimes sometimes revealing and unexpectedly revealing in actions. Like, not one you think would be a political account and isn't really, but uh, you get... <laughs> there's some very well-timed posting, let's say, that has a hidden meaning if you know the context of the timing if you're extremely online and know what was happening at that time cuz like at 420 things like that yeah and very very occasionally something perhaps a bit more revealing we're posting we're recording this on a very political day and i don't think he probably uh posted anything related to that but yeah that would be i'm trying to think of like what would it be a game that would be uh appropriate binding of isaac sure yeah <laughs> Is there not like a shoot Clarence Thomas in the head simulator yet? Uh, I, I think that no? I think that's one that wouldn't be allowed on Steam. Yeah, after the JFK th- reloaded thing, we uh. I thought you guys had like the country of individual freedom over there. You can't put your friggin' video game on Steam. Sounds like a dictatorship <laughs> to me. Gabe Newell is the dictator. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I don't know. You know, in the in the history of game deals, I used to spend a lot of time on cheap ass gamer just looking at stuff. There was. Uh, We'll speak of the Wario 64 of old. Speedy 1961, I believe, was his handle. Getting back to the, our forum posting days. But he had early access to the Circuit City ads and eventually had to stop posting them. I <laughs> <laughs> got in trouble. But yeah, those Circuit City, uh, on its way out, had some pretty good deals going on. They also wouldn't update the stock in my local one. So there was... I fondly remember a 50% off PC game sale or something like that for anything under $20. And a lot more things were way under $20, more than they were marked on the shelf. Right, yeah. So, okay, let's let's get to the real meat of this topic. There wasn't a War- Wario game for Nintendo 64, right? There was not. Wario was in games, but he was not the star. Right. Am I thinking of, like, Wario... Is, is it a GameCube game, Wario World? Yeah, the treasure-developed platformer that... I don't own for some reason. <laughs> well, that was that was going to be my next question. Is it any good? Should I put it in my Twin Beard Plays Mario playlist? Yeah, go nuts. I heard it's pretty good if you're not paying sixty dollars for it in two thousand three or whatever, or fifty dollars. I think they were still fifty dollars on GameCube most of the time. Then I have a GDMU. One day I'll uh, actually install that and play all these games. I don't think I've played any GameCube games. Yeah, that's. I'm trying to think of like one that's really can't miss. The, like, version of Smash Brothers that was the main one? 
Double there. Dash is still fun. Yeah, like I mean, and a lot there are a lot of them that were fun at the time, but also like there are better ways to play this. Although, like, there's a Mario game that I like on there, but you could play it more easily on the Switch. The, the Star Wars games, the Rogue Leader games. Are, oh, sure, yeah, those those I don't think came anywhere. Those didn't go anywhere else. I don't think. Right, the first ones on was on PC, but the other ones are stuck there. Yeah, actually, I was gonna say Metroid Prime was on the Wii, but I didn't like that version. So but yeah, it, it was fun enough, but they deleted the special effects because it was easier than recreating them. <laughs> I didn't remember that. I was just thinking, like, I didn't like the the controls. Anyway, this is this is not interesting content. Is like yeah. nitpicking about game ports. Yeah. Any any more comments on Warrior sixty four? I I gave some examples. I just find I just find it interesting how, uh, despite the copious amount of focused content, there's this this niche that lets you know there's a person behind it. This makes me want to go back, and this would take a lot of scrolling to like the early days of Wario sixty four to figure out like how did this person uh, presumably it didn't start out as their living, but but was this person just like extremely uh, passionate about game sales? Yeah, I mean, I I can see it. I've, I'm kind of that way, not about just like everything in general, but I would scour deals, and it's it's nice to feel like you're helping someone else out, or you know, it's kind of like window shopping. F- yourself sure but also there's there's a result for it like i've thought about with all these uh another thing i'm into is dvds and blu-ray sales from all these boutique labels and i thought about hey you know what might be kind of a fun job is being a media buyer for like a library system Mm -hmm. yeah right i get to spend all this money on all these sales except i don't feel this resounding guilt afterwards right right no it's you're just an activity i enjoy curating the future of research right. yeah to the point where even some of this uh some of my poor choices over the pandemic i'm like i wonder if the library would take these as circulating copies when i'm done with them <laughs> uh, are we ready for another topic i think so jesse jesse your topic is okay how do you pronounce this we need to bring back uh, dogma 95 is what you would say in uh-huh. English, although the people who, who made it were danes so they say like Tauba or something because Danish pronunciation is very strange. Right. Uh, I know that John knows what this is. Do you know what this is, Jim? I um I believe it's a set of constraints on filmmaking. Yeah, you got it. So in 1995, Lars von Trier, whom you've probably heard of, and Tomas Winterberg, who you probably have not, have uh came up with a list of ten rules about how to make movies to deal with the problem of movies being unrelatable and. Uh, too expensive to make for normal people. Uh, and I was just thinking about how a lot of discourse on film Twitter these days uh, kind of orbits around the fact that the movies which are most popular are made on tremendously gigantic budgets and therefore have to be extremely broadly appealing in order to make back their money, uh, resulting in them all being pablum for children. Uh, and so we need Dogma 95 now more than ever. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot like uh, bringing it back to video games. This is a lot like Glorious Trainwrecks or uh, just game jams in general. Like, just make a game in two days and see. And no one's going to care and no one will play it because uh, everybody's playing games with impeccable art design instead. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll read the, the rules here for the listener's benefit. There's ten of them that go like this. One, shooting must be done on location. Props and sets must not be brought in. If a particular prop is necessary for the story, a location must be chosen where this prop is to be found. Two, 
The sound must never be produced apart from the images or vice versa. Music must not be used unless it occurs where the scene is being shot. Three, the camera must be handheld. Any movement or immobility attainable in the hand is permitted. Four, the film must be in color. Special lighting is not acceptable. If there is too little light for exposure, the scene must be cut or a single lamp attached to the camera. Five, optical work and filters are forbidden. Six, the film must not contain superficial action. Murders, weapons, etc. must not occur. Seven, temporal and geographical alienation are forbidden. That is to say, the film takes place here and now. Eight, genre movies are not acceptable. Nine, the film format must be Academy 35mm. Ten, the director must not be credited. This seems like it's getting, it, there's more to this than just like, it should, we should make movies cheaply. There's definitely more like, like, like what we're not, I'm not allowed to make a sci-fi movie now. Let's. Yeah. I was, when I looked at the list, I, you know, some of it, I could kind of see what they were going for, but, uh, others of these, I'm like, okay, what is this? A spe- is this a specific reaction to a thing or d- did these people, were these people, <laughs> was Lars von Trier traumatized by a, a, a dolly once or something? And by that, I mean, like the camera came towards him and like, no, no, stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so there's like under on the Wikipedia article, uh, listener, this is mostly a show about reading Wikipedia articles in case you hadn't worked it out. There's this quote of like the agreement that you sign if you're the director of one of these movies. And it, it says, furthermore, I swear as a director to refrain from personal taste. I am no longer an artist. I swear to refrain from creating a quote work, unquote, as I regard the instant as more important than the whole. My supreme goal is to force the truth out of my characters and settings. I swear to do so by all the means available and at the cost of any good taste and any aesthetic considerations. Thus, I make my vow of chastity. So John Waters, except for the music, is a Dogme 95 filmmaker. I guess so, yeah. There, there probably are several unintentional Dogma movies, right? There's also like a running thing about how every Dogma movie breaks these rules because these rules are impossible to actually follow <laughs> yeah it's like the first two kind of don't and then it's everything that follows except maybe julian donkey boy or something like that is kind of breaks something i don't know i haven't looked too much into it uh, for reasons we may get into later but uh actually let me go let me go grab my i bought the celebration in the last criterion sale i can go grab that and uh, open it on air a recording of the rare moment when i actually open one of the criterion discs i buy all right, this is very exciting. Watched, uh, I just watched the film on the Criterion channel like last week yeah. or something, so it's fresh in my Yeah, uh, I see it there. Uh, okay, yeah, let me go find that real quick. I thought I had it at hand. You can you can talk amongst yourselves while I do that. Listeners, the ones I have seen are uh, The Celebration. I've also seen Italian for Beginners, which I like a lot. I've seen Americana, and I've seen Open Hearts. I think I've seen four Dogma movies. Can you can you rank them most to least Dogma? Ooh, that would be difficult because I don't. When I watched them, I was not sort of taking notes on them. Right, the right. Rules, nor would I necessarily know. It's not always clear whether a prop was brought to the set. Yeah, yeah, that's or happened to be there. Yeah, how would you even know? All right, I have in my hands a copy of the Celebration, <laughs> so. The the clever criterion art they they got is they in the spirit of Dogma ninety five it's a it's a transparent case and except for the criterion logo printed on the the front the usual information um it just has a plain label saying Dogma one the celebration the running time and the year 
And then because it's a transparent case, there's a, the only booklet included. It looks like there is a booklet, but it's a it's wrapped in a, a printed version of the rules on is it red paper? Live live on air, me actually opening a Criterion Collection disc. Destroying its collector value. Yeah, listen listen to that plastic. Director approved. Uh, there we are. Two discs. This is by Vinterberg, right? Yes. One of the two. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember reading the synopsis, and I'm like, "Oh, one of those one of those family uh, intrigue secrets movies." I like movies where you know a small group of people just have it out in a in a dramatic in a uh, situation. That's very much what occurs. Yeah, <laughs> does uh, does what it says on the tin. Yeah, I'm, th- I'm thinking things like you know who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and uh, what's in the I don't know to a, to another extent Free Fire. Jesse, have you seen... It reminded... Uh, I have not seen either of those films. It did remind me a little bit of Knives Out, which is not quite the yeah. same thing. But yeah, almost kind of bottle episode-ish, which Dogme 95 would seem to support that kind of work, except for if that counts as a genre. Bottle episode? What about what about directors who are genres unto themselves? Yeah. Like, John Waters could never make a Dogma movie. As soon as there were two Dogma 95 movies, uh, the whole thing just fucking fell apart. That's yeah, why. Yeah, it's just impossible. Yep. All right, let's talk about The Five Obstructions now. I saw this... I found this movie, like, on the floor. Like, I was <laughs> staying at somebody's house, and I found it on the floor, and I was like, what's this? A documentary about how... I think it's the same two people... Lars von Trier and Jorgen Leth, however you pronounce those names. Different second person. Oh, is it? And uh, one of them is challenging the other to remake one of their early films with uh, under a set of constraints. Um, and the first one is you have to remake the film in Cuba with no set and no shot lasts longer than half a second. Wow, that seems <laughs> difficult. Sounds like natural born killers. <laughs> I, I hadn't seen the original movie, but it was just a mess, and it was just like, okay, this is a, a delightful mess. And the second constraint, that they the, the, had to remake the movie a second time, they had to remake the film in the worst place in the world, but not show the place on screen. And I, I think this is like for the for the recipient of the obstruction to to choose the worst place in the world. I think that, that they had to decide what it is, and they've, they remade the film in the red light district of Mumbai, hiding it behind a translucent screen. And the third obstruction is to remake the film any way you choose. Ah, creative freedom, the true obstruction. <laughs> yes. Anyway, it goes on like this. This is incredibly masturbatory. Like, this is why I don't like eight and a half. Directors making movies about directors making movies is a recipe for the worst movies in the fucking world. For some, for some reason, Hollywood loves to make movies about filmmaking. Who knows why? <laughs> I just watched The Player recently, and actually just yesterday, somebody threw out some books in my apartment, and it turns out a copy of The Player was among them, so I had to pick that up. <laughs> yeah, there's 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 movies that about movies that glorify it, and there's movies that just absolutely rip it. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly kind, kind of here for the ones... Even the ones that rip it, you can tell, you know, they wouldn't be doing this if they didn't care. Right, yeah. But uh, the, I, I like I like quite a number that take a look at look at that kind of thing. Although I guess All About Eve is more about theater, but very much in the same kind of vein. Yeah. About actors. So it's show business, yeah. Yeah. The reason I had put this topic in the bucket was that I had had this idea that John and I should do a podcast where every episode we talked about one of the Dogma movies, there are roughly... 
40-ish question mark dogma movies because it's not totally clear uh, in some of the later ones whether whether they count or not. But it turns out this is impossible because uh, probably like two-thirds of them are just unobtainable on any format. They just don't exist at all. They were never released on home video. They're not on file sharing. They're not on streaming. Yeah, yeah. Releasing the movie in a watchable format violates one of the rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's like a... There's, there's four or five like good ones that people know about and then there's a bunch of them that are like a korean director heard about the idea but didn't really get it and made a movie and it's like technically a dogma movie but it doesn't follow any of the rules because like yeah what were they gonna say no come on (laughs) and like that movie's not on any format that you can buy it on (laughs) like right yeah this movie was considered one of the best of the year, but the, somebody forgot to put film in there. Yeah, exactly. Or they were like, the the production companies which own the rights to these movies are like a guy in Denmark, and you have to phone him. Yeah. That's basically how the music business works. I want to I do a Dogme 95, but have it be like a drinking game. Like... <laughs> but, but, the, but the film is, is the participant, so every time the thing happens... Like there's a quick there's a quick cut or some other acknowledgement that the thing happened. They have to pour a shot on the film. Yeah. <laughs> every every time a rule is violated, you have to drink. But they've brought alcohol to the set, which was not already present on location. It'd, it'd be funny if you could work that into the script. So like the drinks are happening as a oh actually yeah that would be that would be good. One of those hidden things where you know you're not necessarily supposed to notice it as the audience, but it it kind of motivates. Uh, the action, yeah. Like every every time something happens, this person take a person takes a drink in the scene, or every time a person takes a drink, it's because this happened. Yeah, that would be a pretty interesting writing constraint. That's as far as I get with creative anything. <laughs> I'm like, wouldn't it be neat if? <laughs> yeah. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, once you've you've put the idea out there, that's as good as actually doing it. Yeah, exactly. Frog Fractions Five is on the way. <laughs> Just as soon as you have an idea and put it. T- Tweet it out. Yeah, it's it's said, it's out in the world, and you, you, you can only make it worse by actually producing the video game. <laughs> are, we, are we ready for another topic? Who's making a flag in the uh Oh, that was bucket? me. <laughs> I, have, I have like a, a big time ADHD. So. <laughs> I, I drank a Rockstar energy drink today, so I know the feeling. It didn't actually make me any, any more awake. It just <laughs> put bees in my head. All right. Uh, so my topic is seeking Mr. Eaton's name again. I talked about this. Jeez, when did I talk about this? It was ep- episode 115, so quite a while ago. Oh yeah, because because I, I, this was like before I started on it, uh, and, I, and then I actually went and did it. I wasn't, I didn't know that I was going to do it last time I talked about it. I went and did the seeking Mr. Eaton's name quest, which took six months. Right. So this is a thing in a in a browser game where you have to do a lot of tedious stuff to sort of like beat the game yeah so this is what it's part of a browser game that is tedious but less tedious so fallen london is like a like a choose your own adventure game with an economy basically uh set in a world where where like london was stolen by bats is is the idea in a world where london was stolen by bats so it's on the same continuity as adventure for the atari (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) What other games have prominent bats in them? Zubats in Pokemon? Bats that can just steal things that shouldn't fucking be able to be stolen. And Seeking Mr. Eaton's name is a, is a subquest inside of this world where your character gets obsessed 
who knows even what with what. Like, I played through this whole thing, and I didn't understand what was going on story-wise at all. But your character develops an obsession that is like – the idea is that you have – there's ludonarrative consonance between the player's obsession and the character's, where like your character gets obsessed with this quest line. The player gets obsessed with this self-destructive quest line. And you both go on this down this path together of destroying yourselves. It all comes back to House of Leaves once again, and it's it's interesting. Like I, I, uh, I talked about this in terms of not really knowing, uh, not really knowing what was happening, and just like having read a bunch of blog posts about it. But having done it, like it's not nearly as bad as as everyone everyone makes it out to be. It was basically six months of doing a thing once a week, and then like spending two weeks grinding out a certain action. And that's pretty much the whole thing. So it's your second job. Well, yes, except that um, you only get like a hundred turns a day, and so so like you can you can you can burn through those. Unfortunately, you can't burn through a hundred turns all at once. You have to do it in dribs and drabs over the course of the day. But um, I'm realizing now it's it's very difficult for me to talk about this without like without giving more context than I have time to give. Join the Discord for more. He's been posting updates. That's right. Well, I'm done now, but you can go through, scroll through the history. Uh, I ask as a person who recently like quit playing video games called Turkey. Oh, is this like a good use of your time? Is this good for you? Um, I I think it was interesting. Like, I, part of the point of seeking Mister Eaton's name is that like the game explicitly warns you off of the quest, and that this is like theming it as a self destructive obsession that will. Destroy your character and waste your time. Right, like broccoli tries to warn you with its horrible taste. <laughs> right, but the the text, like the the writing, is interesting, um, and that's really the reason. The whole reason you're playing Fallen London is is for the lore, for the for the the quality of the writing and the and the flavor. But I would say that no, it's not worth. Well, well, it's not worth six months of your time for sure. But I didn't actually put in six months of like anywhere near. Uh, you know, six months of playing a regular video game level of time doing it. Right. This is six months of uh, 10 minutes a day or something. Right, exactly. Uh, but it, 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 it does take a lot of, like, planning uh, to get it done. Wiki strategizing. Right. And that was that's actually part of it. Like, I think this th- – so this was developed a few years ago. Uh, like, the quest came out a few years ago. And I think that at the time it was probably a lot nastier because there are there are a lot of traps – and by traps, I mean things that are not necessary to to do, but that can really harm your character. And I think you're supposed to be muddling through this, not knowing how to progress and just trying everything. And like, if you hit the the trap that is called black in your mind like paper, it just halves one of your stats. And what you get out of it is very minimal. But I've also seen people like role playing. Not not you can't. It's not really an MMO, so you can't really see people playing it. But you like look, you look in forums. And people are talking about doing this, where they are role-playing Seeking Mr. Eden's name, where they are doing all that unnecessary stuff on purpose because they want to go all the way with the, with the character, with the idea of it. Um, and I can respect that, but, like, who has that kind of time? But, yeah, I was, I was following a guide. And when, if you follow a guide, it's, it's, it's pretty smooth sailing, honestly. Yeah, I want to, I want to see an arcade machine of this and uh, get, the, get the Tower of Draga experience for Seeking Mr. Eden's name. And that's actually a really interesting way to to approach it, and I wonder if that would work. Like I've de- so I read. Um, there's a Tumblr. I think it's called Saint Arthur. Uh, I was a candle is the name of it, and there they have a lengthy blog post about like their experience with the early stages of in development of the in development seeking quest, 
And there is a lot of like, yeah, I was doing this together with this other guy. And we agreed that when we come to a certain choice, like they, he would go one way and I'd go the other way just to see what would happen. Uh, and so there, there, there is, there was at least at the time some community, communal solving of that, um, of that sort of puzzle. And Fallen London keeps adding content, but I never, my character like got to what I would call the end game content, but never got to the, a, a point where I felt like I was doing any meaningful exploration ludically. There, there, everything was always in the guide. Mm. The, the thing that was, most frustrating to me about seeking Mr. Eden's name was just that the the writing is very elliptical. It's very dreamlike. Um, and Fallen London kind of has those tendencies anyway. You know, if something happens to you in the game and you're confused about it, and you, you can go do an internet search and find like one of the lore geniuses has collated uh, posts from like 12 different storylines where if you read these 10 se- disparate sentences it, like it all adds up to the backstory that makes that mo- the moment make sense. Is Fallen London on Genius dot com? Uh, it should be. It need, like it's it's very lyrical. Um, the, the, the Penguin Random House edition of a annotated Fallen London. Yeah, there'd be the Cliff's Notes is what I need. Um, but those the Lord the Lord Genius post doesn't exist for seeking Mister Eden's name because like because the game explicitly asks people not to talk about what happens. Right. Yeah. I was. I was. Wondering about that because you've been making all these posts. And I wondered, is there like a, is there a getting over it with Bennett Foddy moment where it's like beyond this point, don't post anything about it. Yeah, there or, there actually is. Yeah, it's right at the end, so there's not much beyond that. Yeah, and I, like, I know what you did. What you did post about uh, the the severed head was uh, pretty amusing. Yeah, though. yeah, that was that was the highlight of of the content that I understood. <laughs> it's like when I it's like when I see the fart jokes in Moby Dick. Right. <laughs> Right for the for the listeners, I I posted a snippet from the game where the to in order to go north and find the answer to your the question you're obsessing over, you need to collect the seven candles of the false saints. Uh, and the last one is called Saint Gawain's candle. And what happens is that you go to the Chapel of Lights and uh, you perform this rite. And at the end of the rite, uh, your body gets hollowed out and filled with wax, and they put a wick in there. Uh, and the, they, 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 um, cast a spell of some kind that turns the wax into a golem. And, uh, so your character dies and you play the rest of the game as the wax golem with your own severed head placed on top of the wax golem's body, which makes no difference whatsoever to the gameplay itself. Like, you just go about your business performing actions like you, you did the entirely, entirely the same. It's like things where the clone replaces the original character and they, Treated as the same character, right? Right. Nobody notices that this is your severed, a lifeless severed head on top of your shoulders. So it is like a second job, then. Yes. <laughs> Did you find the name? Is there a name to be found? Uh, no, no, I have no idea. Like, it would be pretty funny if the last, like, the thing that it asked you not to, not to uh, reveal was just the word Phil or <laughs> Bob, Melvin. Yeah. Nobody should know my real name is Melvin. That's the thing. Like, if it asks you not to reveal what's beyond the avid horizon, but you know, if I did, like, no one would under, no one would make heads or tails of it. Like, it's just a few paragraphs of like elliptical prose that that would mean nothing unless you are one of the lore geniuses. Yeah. Are you more inclined to reveal what's beyond the avid horizon or the Wu Tang secret? The Wu Tang secret. 
I don't know the Wu Tang secret, so I I couldn't even reveal that if I knew it. Or well, I've got or, bad news for you because I will never reveal the Wu Tang secret. <laughs> What's inside the thirty six chambers? Yeah, I don't know. That's as many as three dozen, and that's terrible. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? I think so. As interesting as that was, we must move on. Uh, for this topic, we're going to be reading the poem, This Is Just to Say, by William Carlos Williams. Uh, would one of you like to read the poem, or shall I? Uh, sounds like I'll do it. <laughs> I was raising my hand to to say Jim will do it. Uh, it's Okay, yeah. I, we didn't agree on a method beforehand. Luckily, it's not a video podcast. I'd have to put on clothes. <laughs> but you're already wearing a full suit. <laughs> oh, this is interesting. So this poem that I linked to, like, presumably this is just to say is like, it's named after the first line of the poem, but it actually might just be the title and not be part of the poem. I'm just going to read it as if it is. This is just to say, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me. They were delicious. So sweet and so cold. Uh, and this is one of those poems that has become, uh, I would say, more of a meme than it was a poem. Yeah, uh, Erica just memed the hell out of it in in the Discord the other day. This, uh, I, I would be curious to know what caused, like, I presume this poem is quite old based on the photo of the man who composed it. Well, uh, yeah, his, his birth... His death date is given as 1963, so... Uh, right, so how did this make its way back into the zeitgeist? How, why was this on Twitter all the time, constantly, and why is it still? I remember this poem from, like, high school. Like, it is taught in American schools. So that's probably why everybody knows it. Well, I certainly didn't know it. I learned it on social media. Right, right. And, and I learned about p- poutine from social media, so... Yeah, well... Like like all such things, uh, a, a quick search of Know Your Meme reveals something. We're, we're moving away from Wikipedia now. According to New York Magazine, parodies of the poem date back to at least the 1960s. <laughs> so, I mean, that's not uncommon for poems, especially if they re- achieve any kind of notoriety. You know, you'll see parodies. Uh, apparently, the current spread might go back to 2008. Apparently, it was featured on This American Life. Uh, this is Ira Glass's fault. Yeah. Quoting again from the Know Your Meme. This American Life included an explanation of the spoofable qualities of the poem and several spoofs of their own in the second act of an episode entitled Mistakes Were Made. So it looks like the modern genesis probably goes there, although that was probably um, just a bit ahead of it going viral. The, the next date they give is in 2007 on Twitter. Users remix the words of the poem so that they read as lyrics to popular songs. I don't remember that version of the meme at all. I guess I probably wasn't on Twitter in 2007. Yeah, or 2017. I forget what oh, I said there. No. <laughs> but I've, I've seen this with a number of songs where you, you... Was Ozymandias a poem already? I think it was on the show, right? Yeah, we did that one. Yeah, I think I, I submitted it, and then I submitted it because I just genuinely like it. But yeah. uh, the the episode that it was on was like just dunking on it about how all like romantic era poetry sucks dicks, and the people who composed it were all assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I like it. I mean, the latter can be true without the f- the former necessarily being. Um, but yeah, that's another one that is subject to that same kind of treatment. Yeah, yeah, that one is also extremely memey. So what I remember, what I remember them saying in high school about this poem is that the purpose of the poem is to, from the writing itself, to convey the sensation of having eaten the plums. Like William Carlos Williams is writing this poem as a way to atone for their for their. Uh, their sin and to 
provide this alternate pleasure, which is reading this poem, uh, instead of the pleasure of, of eating the plums, which you don't get to do now. Ah, surrogate sin. Right. So sweet and so cold definitely does, like, it's just two adjectives, but it really does a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. I, I want a goddamn plum right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hot in this room where I'm recording. Yeah, the feeling of biting into cold fruit, cold stone fruit, and it hitting your gums, like, it's so, that's a real visceral uh, feeling. Yeah, it's extremely specific. It's evoked so effectively by only two words. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, and I find it I find it hard to criticize as a, a poem. I know some people have dunked on it or whatever, or wondered what the hell. But uh, you know, I, I like it as this little moment in time. But you know, just those just those little portraits of things that are not portrayed, kind of in the history of art. You know, you have all these things like landscapes and like pictures of normal people that were considered heresy or just kind of wild in the day because you just didn't do that sort of thing because paint was expensive <laughs> or something like that. So it's, you know, it's just this little kind of kitchen sink type thing. Right. Yeah. No, if you want to dunk on a William Carlos Williams poem, like the, the one about the, the wheelbarrow next to the chickens, that one, that one could, Oh yeah, yeah. that one can go. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, you know, it's one of those things where the simplicity, you know, it's putting the indentations in the right place is doing a lot of the heavy lifting here. And I know that can rub people the wrong way. I think we we talked about such spacing <laughs> not that long ago. But uh all right, I'm going to do an experiment where I just like I ch I, I change this into a paragraph. Okay. <laughs> Add punctuation. Yeah, there's only two sentences here. Three stanzas, the first two. Has anybody actually set the poem itself to music yet? Let's uh Esper, drop in some unlicensed music that's going to get Jim sued here. Oh, good. That's just what I need. Esper, can you make Jesse's voice, like, clip a whole lot? Just really distort it. Uh, I have, should I speak in order to make the effect hilarious? No, I mean for the whole show. For the whole show? I know. I'll sound bad. People will wonder why. Well, this is why, friends. I threatened to get Jim sued by a litigious rights management organization. No, I, I accidentally put prose version of the... I put it in general chat in the Topic Lords Discord instead of in the... Uh, in fact, I also put the other link in there, too. So that's why you haven't seen anything from me in the um, Discord chat. Are you sure that you did that? Because I'm in the general chat on Topic Lords and I don't see anything from you. Oh, sorry. No, it's it's working on. It's the working on channel. Uh, you're working on a podcast right now. Yes. Work it, working on these damn plums. I'm going to go ahead and delete that. Oh, Discord <laughs> Discord crashed when I tried to delete it. It's actually very funny out of context. I imagine the lords who hang out in the Discord. Listeners, you can hang out in the Discord if you uh, sign up to the Patreon for this show, which uh, you can do very inexpensively. I'd like to plug the Topic Lords Discord. <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty funny to just post the text of a famous poem with no context. I'd like, I'd like to plug it with a big cork so no one else can come in because it's perfect right now. <laughs> I got Kevin in. That's all that matters. I single-handedly got Avery Burke to join Discord. Oh, did you? Yeah, because he wanted to be in my uh, combinatory logic reading group Discord. Oh, I gotta, I gotta invite him to the Topic Lords Discord now. I presume this part isn't in the show. If it's in the show, listeners, write in and tell me. Esper, make a make a ransom note out of cut clips from the show. <laughs> are we are we ready for another topic? Yes, I think so. Do we have anybody who like studied poetry? Who like outside of 
like as part of a literature major? Yeah, Laura. Previous episodes. Okay. Yeah. I thought so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I should, I should have Laura on again to talk about poetry. I wish I was more intelligent about poetry. Well, I think that's that, I think that's the running theme of uh I started this segment in order to do that and I don't think it's working. Yeah. <laughs> I think. It's it's fun. I like hearing it. Yeah, no, I I'm, I'm enjoying it too. Like uh, but I feel like I'm just snarking about about that how something doesn't actually rhyme when it's supposed to. It's like a conversation RNG seed more than a uh, a detailed analysis a lot of the time. Right. Which is fun too, but uh No, I I I'm, I'm having a great time with it. So uh, Jesse, your topic is whatever happened to outdoor pop machines? Yeah, whatever happened to outdoor pop machines? Uh, there's one in my train stop. What happened? To, whatever happened to train stops? They got confused for train spot too often, and uh, okay, the heroin was a problem. <laughs> the idea of this topic was just that, like, it seems to me that there used to be outdoor pop machines pretty frequently where you could purchase a delicious ice cold uh, soft drink. That's not how the Family Guy theme goes at all. You're fucking it up. Oh, I, I so don't get this. Is that a joke? Yeah. Uh, it seems to me the, the, the way the way you're going. It seems to me. It's all, it's, oh, oh, okay. Uh, I just have an odd manner of speech. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, in any case, Esper, make that funny. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed this this idea of commanding Esper to do things that are hard. <laughs> No, we're not talking about the editor. We've, we're designing an AI now, so that we can just shout the name and commands. Esper, get me a substantial raise. <laughs> uh, so, so anyway, I think there used to be outdoor pop machines where you could uh, buy pop, and now there are not, for the most part. Uh, and I wonder what happened to make them go away, whether they became uh, unprofitable or whether they were sort of legislated away in my province or what. Why are there not any anymore? Uh, it, maybe they had a symbiotic relationship with phone booths, and now oh. we're, we're seeing the knock-on ecological effects. Oh, like people would buy soda when they they would like check the change return slot to see if anybody left a quarter in there, and if they did, they did, they could buy a soda with it. Yeah, there you go. Or you know, as as they recommend, you should drink a very sugary drink before you pop on a uh, audio conversation with somebody because it makes everything a lot yeah. smoother and clearer. Have you seen a, a a soda machine with or a vending machine of any kind with uh like a credit card slot on it? Yeah, I think most of the ones around here have that going on now. Cuz cuz that was going to be my guess is that people just don't carry change around anymore. Right, but the, but they at least newer machines are retrofitted to take credit cards. I wonder if maybe older machines couldn't be. But then why wouldn't the newer Machines that do take credit cards could be put outside, presumably, right? Why are they not? Oh, because maybe um, they're vulnerable to credit card skimmers? Oh, maybe, yeah. Or I, I was imagining, like, maybe uh, it's because of the, the credit card company taking a cut of the transaction. Maybe that makes it unprofitable enough that it's not worth selling something so, so low margin. Yeah, they just pass it on to the consumer. I was looking at the prices the other day, and it said prices reflected on the the digital display or whatever are the cash only prices. Oh sure. Right. Yeah. Also, so so does it. Our machines are up at like two twenty five now. Yeah. Yeah, I think their five hundred and ten milliliter bottle here is three something Canadian, which sounds like probably two fifty US. Yeah, that that sounds about right. Even though I don't know the op, the conversion off my off the dome piece here. Yeah, they uh, they exist uh, confusingly at another train station. There was one machine that was just like straight up not working, but there 
remain there because it was presumably easier to just leave it there than move it. And then closer closer to another spot were the working vending machines. There's a small town in Indiana which is famous for having a maybe 60s or 70s era pop machine, which is an outdoor pop machine that is allegedly the fastest pop machine in the world <laughs> because uh, it seems like the... It's been overclocked. Re- exactly. The mechanism that releases the can has is like gravity fed and you get the can that's lowest. So when you press the button for the one you want, it releases one can from the bottom, which is right above the feed area where you pick up the can. So it's impossible to get your hand from the button to the to pick up the can before it's like already at rest. And whenever the local news has no news to report, they send someone to go talk about the fast pop machine. To see if they can they can buy something without their hand being crushed by the falling soda. I guess. I mean, the, the idea is you're supposed to try to like hit the button and then be be in place to catch the soda in time. Right. But you can't do it because it's so fast that it's already it's already dispensed. Last time my wife and I were in Berkeley, we went to a drive-through and we had got um, a two diet cokes. I mean, as part of a larger order, but like the the salient part is that there are two diet cokes. And there was this $7 surcharge at the bottom that none of us could, fig- neither of us could figure out. We ended up asking the, the drive-through person and they said, Oh, this is the sugar tax. It's like, apparently it's an extra 350. This is, this is now law in Berkeley that if you buy a soda, uh, you're paying an extra 350 per drink. But only if it contains sugar, it doesn't. No, because we got diet That's soda. Nice, yeah. Yeah, so aspartame apparently is also subject to sugar tax. I guess so, yeah. Which is like, I, I, I'm wondering now, is that something we could push back on? Yeah, there's no, uh, it's not explicitly stated in the Constitution that the federal government has the power to tax sugar. Or call it sugar tax, and but also tax anything sweet. Like, my son is sweet. Are, are we agree to tax, is he going to get taxed next? Don't give him any fucking ideas. <laughs> don't give any, don't give anybody no fucking ideas on this, this day. <laughs> so to my to my knowledge like certain foods especially foods that you would use as ingredients not that are not sort of ready to eat are exempt from sales tax here usually and i would expect a bag of sugar is probably exempt so that that seems like the opposite situation could you just go to the grocery store and get a two kilogram bag of sugar and then like mix it into your pop in front of the wherever you bought it, and be like, ah, delicious untaxed sugar. Right, right. Yeah, they don't. I don't think it's actually taxing sugar, even though it's called that. It's specifically taxing sweet drinks. So it has to be sugar dissolved in water, or anything sweet dissolved in water. So which I'm not going to do with my son. So you go, go take your your money grubbing vultures elsewhere. Government. That that metaphor didn't really <laughs> work out. That's fine. Yeah, Vulture's not generally known for their financial uh, savvy. Yeah, that's the problem. We need Vultures that know the difference between sugar and aspartame. Maybe if they had grabbed some more money, they wouldn't be eating dead possums all the time. Are we, uh, are we ready for another topic? I think I am. Yes. John, your topic is Godzilla. Yeah, Godzilla. A big topic for a big guy. Or female. Go, go. Godzilla. Yeah. So, how many how many Godzillas have you seen? I watched uh, all the mainline movies I hadn't seen of the what I define as the classic era, meaning when it was all or mostly guys in suits. I have seen the first half hour of the first Godzilla movie twice. <laughs> I've seen Pacific Rim and I've played Psychonauts. Okay. Awesome. 
Yeah. I'd been I'd been meaning to watch them because Criterion, here we go again, put out the, the big set that had the, the Showa era films. So the original run of Godzilla before they took a break and uh, before they realized they should start making more of them again. Um, so 15 films from the from 1954 up through 74, I want to say. I forget. Yeah, they ended just ahead of Star Wars. Um, I used to have all this information in my brain a year ago as I tried to plow through them. Um, but yeah, they're all. It's a pretty consistent series as far as quality. There are like 29 films made, 29 of the Japanese series, uh, including Shin Godzilla, which I didn't rewatch, but is just phenomenal. Great movie. That was fun to see in theaters. Um, now, when you say they're consistent, you just mean the Japanese ones, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, although I will say Godzilla 1998, the American one, not as bad. Is that the one with Inspector Gadget in it? Yes. I think I may have seen that one when I was eight. Yeah, I saw I saw it sometime on TV a while ago, but I, I rewatched it as part of this, even though it wasn't, you know, I say I was watching all the suit films. I also watched um, uh, the rest, the the majority of the other science fiction films that the Toho studio put out in the same period that used a lot of the same uh, staff and crew. Toho made a bunch of movies, many of which are very good. They were like, it, it seems the only film production company fan in the post-war era. There weren't that many. Yeah, there's a whole history. So another, th- um, so some of my motivation for this was I realized it was possible to see most of them. There are three that are currently out of print on home video in the U.S., and there are three right in the middle of the uh, the Heisei era, the second series of films, which is unfortunate because they're also that's that's the second cycle of like what is it eight films or seven films. Uh, they're some of the only ones that have continuity that kind of means anything, and and three of them are just largely out of print right now. There's Weird's Righteous used with one, and I'm not sure about the other because Sony owns a vast majority of the the more modern ones and two, two of the ones out of print, I think are still under their banner. So not sure what's up with that. Uh, but I was able to find copies for not too much money. And then the rest of the films are like out of the non Godzilla films are kind of largely out of print. Uh, so, but archive.org had them, <laughs> uh, but it was so motivation. I knew it was possible. And also some time ago for uh, reasons of comparing, uh, learning more about the first movie and comparing it to Shin Godzilla. Uh, I wrote a paper on it for a class that I was just taking for fun. I bought the book, uh, Critical History of Toho's Godzilla series. Uh, I might be butchering the title a bit, but it's by David Callot or Kalat. I forget how he's, his name is pronounced. Um, but it's a pretty a pretty thorough look at the entire series up through Shin Godzilla and all that. So that was fun to read his his thoughts, watch the film and read his thoughts on them afterwards. And it was interesting to see how my which ones I liked, which ones he liked, and uh, the reasoning for it. So I've been talking a lot without saying a ton. But uh, <laughs> any questions for, so far from the class? I'm I'm interested in the idea of like if you can't find a movie, then you just check archive.org and it's probably there. Yeah, more than you'd think. I'm sure not everything's there, but which is funny because Toho is kind of notorious for their control over the series. Like one thing is that all the various kaiju are their own license. So if you want to include them, they're separate permissions. Like if you're including them in a licensed product, like a video game. Right. Or even the recent movies, perhaps. It's a separate trademark and everything. Oh, that reminds me. I've also played Rampage and that Blue Oyster Cult song in Guitar Hero. Yeah. (laughs) 
This reminds me a little bit of that that period where in the U.S., like film copyright was such that you had to state that it was under copyright, and if you forgot, then it wasn't. And yeah. So there's a there's a few golden age of Hollywood movies that are in the public domain because they just forgot to put the copyright notice in the credits. Yeah, Night of the Living Dead and Charade famously were both like instantly public domain. Was was that what happened to It's a Wonderful Life? Uh, I th- no, I think the copyright on the film was just not renewed, but the then it got yanked back into the public domain because the story has a copyright. Because it's based on a book, oh. yeah. So that's a weird situation. If you go, if you celebrate Public Domain Day every year, which we can finally do again, that's a, that's nice. Yeah, but uh, you know they update what's been what's entering the collection this year, but they have this the standard thing, and that's that's one of the examples they post to say, "Isn't copyright fucked up?" It's <laughs> just permanently on the page. Sherlock Holmes is in the public domain except for the last couple of stories, and yeah. so it's you can't mention any characteristics of the character that were only in those ones. Yeah, so if your Sherlock Holmes is not an asshole, right. uh, you're going to get a copyright violation. Hey, but anyway, yeah, back to Godzilla. Large topic, you know, genre films inspired by King Kong, inspired by the Beast at 20,000 Fathoms, which I didn't get to, uh, so that's a whole. The original film, Jesse, you haven't seen the whole thing? I have not. Uh, yeah, I, I was sort of was in a bad circumstances to watch it the first time and then the second time i just like got distracted and didn't get through it whoa yeah okay the beast at Twenty Thousand fathoms is interesting is this french it's american uh, ray harryhausen i think okay did the uh oh yeah american science fixer science fiction giant monster film it looks like a godzilla film apparently it's about a dinosaur coming out of the ocean to to wreck new york city yeah and you know there was some kerfuffle or feelings about that for some time so the first the first one, really dark, you know, has a story, has human characters you kind of care about, which is definitely not par for the course. Um, Godzilla doesn't fight a monster until the second movie, Godzilla Raids Again, or uh, Gigantus the Fire Monster, if somehow you've got the old edited English version. Uh, that one, that's one of the not-as-great ones. Uh, the, the fight against Anguirus, the, the Ankylosaurus, is pretty cool. They messed up the camera work, so they... Um, they wanted to shoot it so that it would be in slow motion when it played back, but they uh, actually undercranked the camera. It's like, oh, yes, if you go ca- slower with the camera, the action will be slower, right? <laughs> so, no, so it's one of the, f- it's, so the action is actually very fast. Uh, so the, the set piece battle in that is great, where they destroy Osaka Castle. Spoilers. I, I really like that, like, oh, we, we messed up this shot. I guess it just goes into the movie like that. Film was expensive back then. You couldn't, like,. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah, and and that movie in particular. So the first movie shot by Ishiro Honda, who shot the majority of the, uh, directed the majority of the original, the original series. I should say he he directed the original film and then most of the rest. Uh, the second one, I forget the director's name. It was his the only Godzilla film he did, and that's because it was a kind of a cash in sequel. Uh, so that sequence is worth it. Godzilla gets frozen at the end. Uh, it's a new Godzilla because spoilers. Godzilla dies at the end of Godzilla. Mm-hmm. But then this new Godzilla is presumably the same monster in the rest of the films. Once again, it's pretty loose. Replaced with a clone. So yeah, so the rest of the films through the series, there was a second Godzilla the whole time. I, I really like the idea that like the, one of the rules for Dogma is that you can't remove shots from your film; you can only add them. So if you keep making takes, they all have to go in. Yeah, what you got to do, Prince of Persia: Sands of Time style. <laughs> Wait, that's not how it happened. Just shoot new footage. <laughs> yeah, 
and then and then Godzilla took some time off after that cheap cookie sequel, and then you had King Kong versus Godzilla crossovers. Yeah, a crossover, big hit. The only way to see the original Japanese one in the U.S. is, uh, aside from probably pirating it or whatever, is to get that Criterion the full set. You can get the American version by itself, but rights being what they are and everything, there's some weird thing where not only is it the only is it on that set, it's not on the disc that has the American version of the film. It's it's included as a special feature on another disc, which is always fun. Yeah. Like we were talking about the the laserdisc transfers of the original Star Wars trilogy that eventually did come out on DVD, but only as obscure bonus discs. Yeah, I bought. The, fortunately, those DVDs are actually pretty reasonable now. They did. I think they were expensive maybe for a while, but I don't know. Demand <laughs> cut off for them, and I was able to grab them. Um, let's see. I, I'm not going to go through all 23 films, but for 20. 20- 30 films, but uh, maybe I'll highlight some of the favorites. So I like Invasion of Astro Monster, which is the second movie with King Ghidorah. Uh, it's famous because it starts out with a space mission. They they go to Planet X. This is where the Planet X aliens are from, and uh, Godzilla and Rodan are brought to the planet to fight King Ghidorah. So you get some nice space action and some other silly things with the, the Planet X people. Another one I actually am really enamored with is Son of Godzilla, which opinions vary on uh, Godzilla having a son and how goofy and or ugly looking he is. But redheaded stepzilla. Uh, wait, no, Son of Godzilla is fine. No, the one I'm getting him mixed up. It's been a while. I don't have the list in front of me. Um, All monsters attack. So, uh, so the Godzilla series went on for a while. It seems like they try to end it. Or they think, okay, this is going to be the ending, and then they do more of it, because the money was too good for too long, even though it was diminishing returns every year after uh, King Kong vs. Godzilla. Um, but the film Destroy All Monsters brings in all these other monsters, and that's another reason I I tried to do this. Uh, my One of my earliest exposures with Godzilla was the NES game, Monster of Monsters, and a bit repetitive as a game, but it brings in a lot of these monsters. Uh, and it turns out like the first four you see are not strictly from a Godzilla movie. They're from, they're brought in as cameos from other movies originally. And even only a couple of them are in destroy all monsters, which is like this big, the big crossover battle Royale keeping in with that. So they brought back all these monsters, including a few of them just for like a couple of shots from all these movies. So I was kind of spurred on by wanting to see where all those monsters came from. And that's kind of why I started roping in the others. And it really, it does pay off when you see Destroy All Monsters and all these elements come together. I was like, oh, I see what people were doing with Avengers Endgame and stuff now, you know. It is satisfying to kind of see that. Right, yeah. Um, So that film happened, and then uh, after that, Honda's last film, until he directed the last of the the original cycle, was uh, All Monsters Attack. And it was made for kids. It stars... It's actually like a a fantasy film where the main action is not about Godzilla at all. It's a ki- it's a latchkey kid in late 60s Japan. So it's an interesting look at society at that time and he imagines uh he's best friends with Godzilla's son and uh that helps him overcome his bullies and it uses a bunch of uh edited clips from like the immediate couple of films before that where uh the son of Godzilla appears. But it's but it's an interesting uh an interesting time capsule and pairs well probably with attack of the Friday monsters, the three DS <laughs> kind of weird little RPG about, about the same thing about watching tokusatsu action shows on TV in Japan in the late sixties. 
Yeah. Which are which themselves are a whole offshoot of Godzilla. It's a the the special effects team, the main guy who I'm blanking on the name now. Let me look it up. What is it? The people who did Ultraman. Uh Capcom. No, that's Mega Man. Okay. Superaya. Okay, yes. Yeah, AG Superaya, I believe. Uh the special effects person from Godzilla started his own studio and that's where Ultraman came out of. I've been reading about the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. It's apparently based on a Ray Bradbury short story where a dinosaur falls in love with a lighthouse. It's the original of the lighthouse. Yes. I have not seen I have not seen the lighthouse. Uh and according to the Wikipedia, Lighthouse's foghorn tricks the monster into thinking he's found another of his kind, one who acts as though he the monster does not exist. So the the author of this article is really on the monster's side about this, like really empathizing with this, <laughs> this this creature who is completely misunderstanding the situation. And whomst among us has not? Yeah, who who among us has not fallen in love with the lighthouse that's making a foghorn noise? Yeah. All right. Uh, I'll hit some more Godzilla highlights, and then we're probably out of time. Okay. All right. <laughs> I don't know. I could talk about this. You know, if you want an ultra long episode, if you got nothing to do, I could. We could ramble until something interesting happens. But that sounds <laughs> let's like a, be clear. Esper's going to cut out sixty percent of what we've said so let's, far. Let's let's have a whole lost episode out of, of all the bullshit from this one. And, then, and that's actually the reason I try to keep the episode lengths down. Is that now that I'm not editing them myself, I'm making work for somebody else. Yeah, maybe we could do a pass on it. I wish I should have been. I don't know. I'm paying her good money for this. Okay, yeah, I'm still I'm still paying, even though that whatever I don't know. it anyway, more Godzilla highlights. So immediately after um, uh, all monsters attack, you get Godzilla versus Hedora or Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, which is just an absolutely wild uh, late '60s thing that brings in some psychedelia and oh yeah, there are a lot of recurring themes in the Godzilla series, but then there are all these movies that it'll tackle like a new topic. Uh, this one's all about pollution. And so it oddly ties in nice with All Monsters Attack about, you know, kind of what's going on in Japanese society and the concerns at that time. Obviously, there's a lot of social commentary in the first one, but then these two films kind of unexpectedly return back to it. But yeah, that one's wild. There's some animation sequences and an interesting song, a weird psychedelic sequence. Um, That was the only effort for its director because it was just so uh, Yoshimitsu Bano, who... uh, was one of the people who got the ball rolling late years later on the current American series. That was like one of the last things he handled. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just, it's got a lot of appreciation now. It, it does some wild things. Godzilla flies in it by jet propulsion. So that's great. Um, the return of Godzilla, Godzilla 1984, when the series came back after some time off, that's pretty good. It starts introducing sci-fi humans fighting Godzilla with robots. Um, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, not to be confused with uh, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, the first appearance. Some of these are confusingly named. But uh, yeah, Godzilla's name comes first in this one, I believe. There's time travel. It apes a lot of other current movies. Uh, It's notable for me because it has another aspect that pops up more than you might think is English acting. Acting in English, both from Japanese folks and from native speakers who are not actors or not professional actors. And this one has uh, some of my favorite English acting in it in the entire series. <laughs> uh, Godzilla vs. Destroya, another finale, kind of the, f- the finale of the Heisei series. Uh, you get some nice payoff for the continuity. Godzilla is dying because he's made of radiation. Uh, turns out that takes a toll. The movie goes from there. Um, some great moments there. I saw an article written or interviewing the the people who played white people in Squid Game, 
uh-huh. the Korean series about why their acting was so bad. And uh, the, what, the, what they were positing in the, in the article was that the, the people in the editing room didn't speak English. And so they weren't able to tell the good takes from the bad ones. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I have a hard uh, – I'm probably getting a little better since I've seen so many Godzilla movies. Uh, but I'm having a – you know, and just let's let's compare any random person in the cheapest one to Toshiro Mufune in, a, in an Akira Kurosawa film. I'm starting to get a better handle on, uh, you know, maybe some of the discrepancies going on there. But yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah. In the final series um, – the the so-called Millennium series because they all took a place after the American Godzilla and kind of the first one Godzilla 2000 is a pretty good reintroduction. Godzilla Mothra King Ghidorah Giant Monsters All Out Attack is another weird one-off where they took the director the director of the uh, 90s Gamera films, which are I still have to get to, but were well acclaimed for taking this cheapy Godzilla competitor and actually giving giving it some real meat. Extremely good title on this one. Yeah, all giant monsters all out attack. Usually called GMK because it's much shorter. It's weird because King Ghidorah is actually the defender of humanity. The only time this has happened, it's it's very much a one off. You can watch it without seeing any of the others. Yeah, Godzilla is a scary motherfucker in it. Uh, his power is derived from you know the loss of life caused by the I believe I think it's everybody, but specifically the Japanese in the Pacific in World War II. So it kind of flips that all on its head, and he has these dead dead like godlike eyes just completely white oh. there's some fun stuff in there and then uh the final one godzilla final wars is a fan favorite it's it's pretty long there's less godzilla action than you might think but it's kind of like destroy all monsters done with all the uh you know improvements in uh film and crowd pleasing understanding happening before so that's the main godzilla series other highlights are mothra and rodan are both very good their own films um and King Kong Escapes, which is one I don't hear mentioned a lot, but has a mechanical opponent for King Kong, uh, which would later kind of influence Mecha Godzilla. Uh, very much part of the series because uh, there's a dinosaur that appears in it as a monster that shows up in Destroy All Monsters. Uh, but but really fun, uh, based on a weird tie-in King Kong TV show that was it Rankin Bass did. So semi based on a cartoon produced by an American. There's there's more American and Japanese collaboration going way back than you might think through the series. Uh, but that one that one was pretty fun. It's kind of goofy, but has an, uh, ex- kind of a shocking ending. At least it was to me, given the tone of the rest of the film. And are there any other, any other highlights? The rest of them are worth watching, too. Uh, I will say, seeing Godzilla Final Wars, after watching all those, there's shout-outs to all these other ancillary sci-fi films. And so having sat through some of those, uh, which is a lot, I will say, if you're trying to replicate this experiment, maybe space it out. A lot of the similar themes, especially in the Uri going in Godzilla, like how many times the monster is, uh, oh, an island protector of these native people brought to society to for reasons of capitalism or something like that. Um, it ha- it's a bit much. They start to get creative with the origins for all these monsters, you know, space and genetic engineering and all sorts of things. Uh, but it's a lot at the beginning. And then you'll notice as Mothra appears... The people Mothra originally defended does not. Her heralds, the two fairies, come back. But Mothra's on just like an unpopulated island a lot of the time after a while, because there's some sketchy, sketchy, kind of sketchy depictions. And that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. (laughs) I made up for last time. (laughs) Jesse, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I'm available uh, on the internet 
in a number of places, but I don't necessarily recommend that listeners seek me out because I am an unpleasant and strange person. Uh, one reasonably nice place is the Topic Lords Discord, which you can gain access to by subscribing to the Topic Lords Patreon. You've got to post your mustacheless face now. Uh, but I do have a mustache. <laughs> oh, you can Photoshop it out. And John, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, uh, after after all that, I don't know. <laughs> they want to find me unless they're, unless they're Erica or Jesse. Uh, but I am also on the Discord. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at you old so and so. Same name on the Discord. Please don't dox me. If you want more Wario content, write in. We'll talk about WarioWare some more. We'll talk about Godzilla some more. Yeah, should I should I should I make a Godzilla channel in the Discord? Uh, probably not. You can you can. If if anybody wants an invite to a Godzilla channel on another Discord, uh, find me and I might be able to set you up. I don't know. It was a Discord whose entry was moderated in some third, some outside way, tied into something else, which may or may not be active anymore. I don't know how one would find it, but I might be able to invite you. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!